Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mixtape Memories. Memories. I'm Matt Hart Spade. And I'm Jenners. And we have a very special guest today, uh, Billy Jones, who you may know from the band Other Passengers. You may know as the talent buyer for Shanae and Pianos. You may know from Babies. He has done many, many things through the years here in New York, and we're so excited to chat with you. So how are you doing, Billy? I'm doing well. Yes, I'm. I'm alive and kicking. Yeah, <laughs> aren't we all? Yeah. Yes. Hanging on. Definitely kicking. Yeah. So, what have you been doing over the last year with the pandemic? I mean, obviously, I know Baby TV is happening. Um, how have you kind of transitioned from live shows to no live shows, and and kind of you know what's on your horizon right now? Well, yeah. I mean, there, personally, I as soon as it happened in March of last year, it was kind of quick. We just sort of shut down, and I actually was in Los Angeles, kind of beginning to really see through a project there. There's, you know, we've been working on a baby's Los Angeles for the past, I guess, three or four years and construction had started and there was a lot of progress being made. And so I was in LA kind of doing that when all of this sort of happened and shut down. So my focus was really on that project after I had just kind of gotten through another project here in the city, this club called The Dance, that another mm-hmm. long-winded trying project that opened um, up in October of 19 and then um, shuttered actually Valentine's Day 2020, so literally right before Corona. So yeah, so it was sort of shocking and everything sort of, you know, with the dance stopping and, you know, Babies LA freezing and then, you know, Babies Brooklyn stopping. It was kind of like a moment of like, what, you know, what, what, what is next and what should we do? Mm-hmm. I think at the time we, you know, we were trying to play it by ear as everyone was and the streaming thing hadn't really started yet, but it was pretty much the obvious next step is to 
to start doing shows. So we started the the baby TV thing. And yeah, and I, I think that's been that's been really great for the community. It's been, you know, to keep morale going and keep people active and uh, giving people a platform to, you know, to continue on. But I think there's a lot of exhaustion there for everyone. And, you know, I mean, I mean, not just for streaming, but just in general. Mm -hmm. So I think we're just kind of, we're still in that wait and see mode. And, you know, as this is being taped, things are kind of looking up a little bit, you know, even over the past week, you can kind of feel the energy picking up around people getting excited about programming outdoor spaces, Mm -hmm. doing some special things, you know, actually, you know, maybe on the roof at babies, maybe around the corner, like a street block party or something, or, or these open culture spaces that um, the city has sort of set aside for venues to produce concerts this summer. So I think a lot of that is going to start ramping up. Babies never really opened up partially, even though we are kind of a restaurant and a bar. Just kind of made the decision that to, to bring everyone back and to get all that energy together when we're when like the venue and the music and the community is sort of our main purpose that uh, I kind of wanted to wait until we can have like a special grand reopening, you know, with like streamers and wiki wacky men and like balloons and <laughs> a sign that says like under same management or something. And, you know, <laughs> and, and just like, you know, do a bunch of special shows, just, you know, to celebrate our seventh birthday or something, you know, it's just, and have it feel like a brand new thing again and, and a new party. And rather than have this sort of potential of like, Oh, there's a variant coming. Maybe there's going to be another, you know, pullback. So, you know, luckily with we've had some help with some government loans and there is this grant um that was passed on the last stimulus bill called the save our stages that's right yeah save our stages and um the shuttered i think it's like there's like a specific name of it within the bill but yeah we're i think everyone's sort of standing by waiting for you know the gates to open on applying for that grant so it's almost like refresh 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 on the uh sba website but i'm sure you know hopefully that will come soon and uh a lot of these venues can sort of start planning for the future it's been a weird year it's it's just been kind of waiting and seeing and and um a lot of self-reflection and uh, yeah. some some pivoting, some some personal pivoting and starting other projects that you know I've just never had time to do or things I've wanted to do, and it's uh, it's the only thing possible right now. So, mm-hmm. like, what other what kind of projects have you been? Uh, yeah, I've. If um, you can share, I guess I can share. <laughs> um, I get it's sort of in the process of right. Uh, happening soon, but I'm, um, I actually haven't shared this with anyone publicly, but uh, I'm going to open up a record store in Greenpoint. Um, nice. Yeah, I've, and so I'm discussing lease terms. It's not signed, but it's looking very close. It's literally on my block. Um, and yeah, I've just sort of, it was weird. I was sort of exhausted with music at the end of like prior to, to Corona and I was listening to more podcasts and, you know, books on <laughs> tapes and stuff. Cause it was just sort of like, you know, I don't know. It was just when it's your, it's like when I worked at Starbucks when I was in high school, it was like, 
you get sick of the coffee really fast. I don't know if that's a good yeah. comparison, but it's like I just making music my job forever and kind of listening to the new stuff and understanding and then you, it, it just you kind of get you kind of need a break and um yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and I and, I, and it's and I've I've been reinvigorated there, but I just, you know, I I've always had a really passionate love for jazz and and sort of music that has come out of that. And so during this break, I've had a lot of time to kind of re-engage with that passion, you know, watching hours of YouTube videos, like the vinyl community and probably buying too many records online. Yeah, just just learning a lot and listening all day. So I've, um, I think a lot of people are at home listening more. It's almost like, you know, putting a record on is the closest thing to a live concert or an event that I can sort of attend right now. And, um, so it's, uh, it's really exciting for me. I'm, it's like a dream of mine to do this. Yeah. Super excited. Well, congrats. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of stuff are you going to be selling? Is it going to be jazz stuff or is it going to be? Yeah, no, it's it's going to be mainly jazz, but it's sort of like a, you know, I sort of want it to be an inviting environment for people that are either interested in the music or or do know a lot. It's like I feel like a lot of record stores you walk in and it's like you're walking on eggshells or it's this kind of, I don't know. It's just like I, I've always been, my job has always been to turn people onto the things I love and, and on, a, on a different level and and so this is now my opportunity from all the time and research i've done i really want to to share with people some of that stuff and and i want this space to kind of be sort of 60 40 music and records to like hanging out and sort of like a center mm-hmm. a community center and potentially do talks and and small little performances it's a very small space but you know and there'll be some sort of component in the street sort of a cafe sort of you know now that everyone in New York can have, if you have the right, you know, zoning, we can do sort of cafe style street coffee and maybe, you know, wine and beer down the line. So I kind of just, yeah, I want it to be a place to kind of come like an open environment to buy music and, and, you know, different, different approaches, like a section that's like, you know, cooking, like, what do I listen to when I'm cooking or something like love making or something, you know, it's like, so mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be a focus on just sort of jazz and, you know, rare groove music and funk and soul and psychedelic music. But I think just sort of framing it in the jazz sense, because that will be the, the majority of it will kind of, you know, it's a different sort of brand or niche kind of thing to come check out. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I feel like you've really cultivated a career as a curator. So it makes sense to kind of branch out and, you know, open a record store. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. And it's like, I find these sort of records with terrible covers from like 1976 that, you know, I, I, I find like four or five amazing songs on it and, and I know it's cheap and I want to like tell people about it and be like, you have to just take, it's $5. You have to take this home. Like, this record's incredible, you know? And it's like that feeling of them being like, okay. And like, and then them getting the same joy that I've gotten during this period is like super exciting. So I've been, you know, a DJ, I have a show, a show on lot radio, a little plug there called long haired jazz that I've been doing. That's been really exciting too. And as like another sort of outlet of this sort of new direction. And I'd love to bring a lot of that back to babies. All right. Too, when we open and, sort of, uh, because there is a young community of, you know, 
jazz musicians in New York and Chicago and the UK and LA. And it's like, you know, allowing, creating, bringing, having a space for a lot of those people to sort of present things in like a rock venue or like a sort of a venue like Babies where, um, you know, maybe it would usually be somewhere else like a New Blue or BB Kings or something, you know, but um, trying to to promote and um, support that that music, the, the the current wave of that stuff that's going on, and not just me selling records from you know the fifties, sixties, and seventies. I wanted to go back to the Save Our Stages passage of that bill. I noticed that Schumer, when he gave his press conference, was in front of babies, and I just thought that was so cool. Did that yeah. come about randomly? Uh, yeah, actually, it, it, you know, I'd love to say that it, it was like sort of randomly. I'd love to say that we're close friends, and he, you know, he, <laughs> he, he texted me, and I was like, Charles, you know, I'm busy. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he, I was actually contacted by Den Lyon, um, a colleague and longtime friend of mine and a local promoter and also in Detroit has a company called Mean Red and she's been doing a lot of great work with Neva. Um, and she was contacted by Schumer's office and apparently they requested babies. Um, I, I don't know if it had sort of, they'd seen it or if I'm assuming maybe that someone in Schumer's office had maybe kind of, you know, been to like, drake knight or something that maybe, i don't know but maybe, <laughs> yeah. but maybe it just sort of you know it's maybe it was just known and they're like yeah why don't you try this place it's sort of you know there's like an awning and it's in the middle it's in the middle of the heart of williams you know so um yeah i got the call from jen and it was like kind of fast it was like hey you know can we do this press conference with you know chuck schumer and um i was like sure and she was like can you introduce him and i was like uh oh Okay. I was like, sure. I'm like, I'm kind of in bed isolating in a dark cloud for the past few days, but I'll get up. I'll put clothes on. Um, so I, you know, I did it and, um, it was really wild. I was, you know, there's a photo of, uh, me, James Murphy, Chuck Schumer, all like with like masks on, Charles Chuck Schumer has his hand, his fist in the air and it says like, all right. And I was like, you know, if someone had showed me this image, like when I first met you guys and said, try and explain to me what, what this means, I would be like, what the, <laughs> like, it was so surreal, you know? Cause like I losing my edge was like, you know, what that was like one of the first, that was like the beginning of this whole thing for, for us probably, mm-hmm. you know? And so here I am actually losing my edge uh, <laughs> years later <laughs> in front of babies with, you know, Chuck Schumer and James Murphy. So, yeah, that was really wild. It was funny because he had that was sort of I guess he took like a day or two to to kind of do press on on his support of Neva being or, or say our stages being a part of that act. Um, and he went on the James James Corden show, James Corden, and uh, actually mentioned, you know, there's great venues like Babies All Right. You know, it's like, because I, I, I think it's just like one venue that he knew and he was there. So we got yeah. a little extra plug there on James Corden. So that was that was funny, too. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm still, you know, I'm still, I, since I since I gave him a favor, I'm kind of holding on to that, you know, my back. But I mean, he's going to have to come up for me big one day. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. 
That's so funny. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you got some extra press because, like, I feel like everything you've done over there and just in your career as, like, a talent buyer and curator really deserves that kind of attention. I appreciate that, yeah. It's been quite a trip. It's, you know, I think I'm, at, you know, listening to some of the music from when I first moved here, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to, but, um, or after, but it's, it's I think I'm coming on, 20 20 years in new york and a majority of that after you know playing for a few years but even when i was playing i was sort of uh, booking shows or, or curating or you know finding the best bands in town to sort of you know get to play with me to sort of make my band seem like we were as good as they were so i was always good <laughs> at kind of like finding the best bands in town or at least much better at that than than maybe being one but um but yeah, it's been it's it's uh, it's weird how much time goes by, how much time has gone by, and I'm I've just seen so many things kind of come and go, and 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 uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's been a fascinating uh, ride. When you came to New York 20 years ago, first off, where where did you come from, and also did you come to New York with a specific mission in mind? Oh yeah. Well, I, I had, uh, I had graduated college in 2001 and then I went home for the summer and got a job in like my field, which is like video editing. And I was basically a receptionist at this post-production facility, but it was like at least, you know, close to that, what I had studied. And, but I just, I'd always known that I wanted to play music and I had a bunch of high school friends that we would play music in the summer, um, recording and stuff. So I was like secretly plotting and I was reading this, oddly I was reading this book called Bong Water at the time and it was set in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it actually later became sort of a, a really low rate B film, sort of indie film. I think Jack Black was actually in it early, but nonetheless, um, I uh, I was reading this book and then 9-11 happened um, and it was just like, <sighs> like everything, I mean, we, we all went through it, but it was just sort of like, I, you know, forget anything that I thought I was going to do that was like, buy the books, I'm going to do what I want, because like, the world's ending and, you know, fuck this, you know, so I was like, mm -hmm. I kind of convinced all my friends to sort of pick up and a month later, we were in like a budget van with all of our stuff, no jobs, no apartment driving across country to Portland because I was like, oh, it sounded cool in this book. And Steve Malkmus <laughs> might, be, might be around and go find Malkmus, you know? And it was like, <laughs> so so that was like, that's what we did. And I just, I was in Portland for about 10 months and sort of cut my teeth on playing music. And we would play at this place called Medicine Hat Gallery every week. And that actually was the first name of my, the first band. Other Passengers was called Medicine Hat first, but... So yeah, we, we learned how to do what we were eventually going to do. And then we slow, you know, we got evicted from our house in Portland due to noise complaints, which is, you know, the noise complaints have sort of followed me through, through my career up until <laughs> I bet. babies where it's still so, somewhat of a problem. Even in my apartment, I have like a DB level on how loud I can play records. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it kind of fell apart in Portland, but um, at the time Williamsburg was um, it was becoming quite the thing. And it, 
even when I graduated, it was like, oh, everyone's moving to Williamsburg. It's so over, you know, it's like, and this is like, you know, it had barely even, you know, scratched the surface. So I kind of gave in and said, okay, you know, let's move to New York. And that's when, you know, the Walkman was the, the EP came out and then right when like right before Interpol's record and, and, and the liars came. So there was this, now there was this post nine 11 strokes kind of energy. And it was like, New York, New York, New York. And I was like, and I had just read, I was at a Barnes and Noble in Richmond, Virginia, where I would used to get like a stack of magazines, you know, and just like flip through and dream about like playing music and being in the city. And there was this one article in a fader that sort of profiled 10 small venues around New York. Um, and pianos was one of them. And counter commons was the booker. And I remember seeing this and being like, I've got to get there. I've got to go meet that guy. Like I've got to, I've got to go now, you know? So I, I used the money that I had gotten from totaling my car in, in Portland <laughs> and the, the few dollars I saved up working. And I just kind of came to New York in October of 2002 and just sort of dove in like ready to go and ready to make, make music and, you know, get famous, get indie famous as soon as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like that's how I met you was when you were in other passengers and like, I was definitely very into the, that band and like that dark kind of, uh, you know, psychedelic kind of rock that you were making. And, um, and I think like, uh, you know, that was when it was like kind of easy to kind of make friends with bands and like just yeah. uh, create like this community, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it was, it was cause there was, it was all, it was bands, you know, it was people playing shows. Um, there wasn't a lot of sort of laptop musicians at the time. People had to get practice spaces, had to get together. You know, the model of what was making it at the time was, you know, rock bands or, you know, post-Brit pop bands or, you know, um, it was about sort of indie rock, really. It was just like indie rock and indie pop at the time. And so, so those things were like what people wanted to do and, and had to do. And you had to like, you had to get together and you had to pick up, you had to play shows and there were so many venues in the city and it was, they were popping up all the time. And, but, you know, you would play and you'd find your friends and then there was like six blogs and everyone knew about them and it was blog 1.0 and you just wanted to get one of them to your show and then you know post about you and then it was just such a weird time i remember the first time and i never knew i never knew how to pronounce and i still don't even though i worked with jasper for so many years but jen at jenic or is it jenny jenic yeah jenic.com yeah uh yeah and i remember getting posted on that the first time with his like outrageous descriptions but having someone from uh, Columbia Records reach out about seeing the band and we had played like three shows and we were just like, you know, it was on, it was on the, you know, the legs of like a, a, like a EP we had kind of made in our bedroom and we're just starting to play it out live and, you know, them coming to, to see us at Mercury Lounge and probably leaving 35 seconds into the set. But yeah, it was, it was a time when, when there was so those things, that's what, those were the only things that people were kind of looking at, you know, that and, you know, pitchfork early days. But so, yeah, it was a really, really interesting and different time than, than what it is now. New York was like a, 
it was an organ. It was like a real community of like, you know, live bands playing. When did the pianos gig kind of come into fruition? Yeah. Can you talk about that role? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been playing music a lot and like I said, booking a lot of shows and stuff. And I had, you know, I played Shanae a lot and, and Bill Bronson, who was the talent buyer there. He had also, you know, he had also come up playing in bands. He was in Angels of Light at the time when I met him, which was Michael Giraud from Swans's band. So I had a lot of respect and admired him. And he was kind of like, he had to get his attention. It was funny, he was a Bill too. And then his assistant was Bill Bertel, who was in a band called The Blondes, which was this kind of mm-hmm. rock mm-hmm. band that was, you know, they, you know, they would style their hair and wear suits and kind of hokey at the time but like bill was really an amazing guy and um you know he was he he really loved you know jazz and classical and i remember i insisted that after one of our shanae shows that the sound man put on um so uh, felonious monks music and that kind of blew bill's mind uh Bertel. and so we kind of became close and unfortunately bill bill the assistant bill had some sort of stomach thing occur where he lost his voice and couldn't sing anymore. So he had to sort of retreat from New York and move back to North Carolina where he was from. And, um, and he asked me, he's like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to do this? And I was like, sure. Like I'm, I'm done working at cafes or I, I had so many weird odd jobs. I was a, a substitute teacher. I worked, worked at oxygen network. I worked at, you know, like a <laughs> vegan, a vegan restaurant in Union Square called Other Foods. Like, so I was just sort of hustling um, to do whatever I could to, you know, to get to the next week and just play music whenever I could. And so this just seemed like a really good opportunity. So I jumped at it. Actually, Bill ended up going to North Carolina and refocusing his life on classical music that he had studied at Vanderbilt and then starting his own classical label called New Amsterdam at, with uh, his friend Judd Greenstein, who I later came back into contact with in a, in a completely different context. So we've remained in touch, but it, it's pretty incredible. That was my start. And, you know, I just kind of worked at Shanae and created nights and booked and sort of got active in the community. And then Shanae kind of, you know, it was a tough scene. It was, you know, we didn't, you know, we were, it was a big space on Attorney and, and Stanton Street. A lot of stuff happened, but it was, it was always kind of struggling because we never really got a full liquor license. So it was really hard to, to get by. So with those challenges, it sort of sort of parted ways. And I had always been close with Jasper at Pianos, who had written about the band. And yeah, I just texted him and asked him if he needed help. And, and he said, yeah, come on over. And that was sort of the beginning of my, my experience with, with Pianos. And yeah, that was quite a wild experience too. So you had that role for many, many years. No, I did. I think like five, five or six years, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. um, definitely. Yeah. I was there kind of, it was interesting because it was a time when blogs were becoming a little bit more, more and more blogs were were popping up and CMJ, you know, was kind of coming really blog influenced. And I, I had made it, uh, I think I was not one of the, I was one of the first to sort of invite people bloggers to be like hey you should do a party for cmj and mm-hmm. and you know with brooklyn vegan doing his first parties at, at pianos and stuff like that so that was kind of how that sort of model of those those day parties with blogs and sort of started by doing those at pianos and pianos 
really more than anything aside from some famous residencies and things like that became sort of the center of CMJ when, when the festival was sort yeah. of at its peak or at least its second peak, you know, during the, the, it's aughts peak. Um, but yeah, that was, that was really fun when, when the Lower East Side was completely activated with, you know, all these venues and, and it made for the festival to be like really easy and accessible to see a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. At what point were you like, um, piecing out of the bands, like being in a band? And yeah. Music? Other passengers had, uh, we signed a record deal, I think it was in like 2010 or something. I don't even know. It's all very blurry. I think it was nine or 10. And it was a UK label, kind of a small label. They had like the Silent League in the UK. But yeah, so they were kind of a smaller label. But, you know, when it was time to go over there, we had to, you know, we were going to tour and go to the UK. The band kind of imploded. So we actually never toured in support of our record that came out there. And the band kind of broke up and I tried doing solo things and tried to get it together. And then I eventually found another production partner and we started, you know, a project called New Moods, which was always really hard to say. Mm -hmm. People always thought I was saying New Moons. But yeah, we started New Moods and that was like my last, like, all right, let's do it. And it was a little bit more poppy. It was kind of like Joy Division to New Order as other passengers to New Moods. So it was a little bit more beat oriented and electronic and... We were making a record and things were going pretty well, except, you know, my, my partner sort of had some personal issues and some some sickness kind of stuff. And and uh, I saw that it was it could it went as far as it could after trying and trying. We played like 10 shows at South by Southwest and it was just kind of like, OK, this. And that was right about the time when Babies was starting to become sort of a concept and a thing. And I was kind of like okay, I think I need to focus on this one thing that's kind of been working for me for a long time and mm -hmm. and sort of let go of this thing that's caused me so much anguish and pain. <laughs> and uh, and it was really nice. It was it was like, oh, this is, oh, I can do, this is, you know, I can have a peaceful life. And this is really, I'm still really close to the music and I love working with artists and I love being around artists. So, you know, I think I've carried on as close to music as I've, as I've could without actually producing some myself yeah i mean that's still like a creative role that you know curating and kind of um you know supporting, supporting. or yeah or yeah, yeah. and uh, facilitating access to things that some artists just don't care about or don't know it was like i used to when i worked i was like working more and more in the industry and i and i was still in a band and i sort of had this jekyll and hyde where it was like I almost didn't want people to know I worked in the industry because they'd be like, Oh, the only reason he figured that out is because he's, you know, so I'd kind of like hide, you know, that I worked and it's, I think it's really hard to work in the industry and play in the industry because you really need to sort of focus on the art alone and develop that. So I think I kind of became a bridge of someone who really understood. And there's a lot of people in music, but a lot of people in music have never really tried to get as far as they could playing it. And then, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of A&R guys in L.A. that, you know, you hear about that were in bands and stuff. But, you know, in the music industry as a whole, it's I kind of became sort of an ambassador to the artist and like, you know, softening the blow into this sort of harsh music business that, you know, is around us.
I was wondering if we could take it all the way back and if you could kind of tell us what you were listening to uh, as a kid, as a teenager, in your early 20s, uh, kind of before the move to New York, um, and what kind of inspired the band and the bands, plural, yeah. and so on. Oh, man, yeah. I um, Where should I start? I mean, I, I was thinking about... I remember the first two things. I had two older sisters, and they weren't, like, the biggest music heads. My parents didn't have a lot of records. I remember my parents had a copy of um, Double Fantasy, which I think came out, you know, the year I was born. Um, that was, like, the coolest record they had in their stack from what I looked at in high school. <laughs> but my sisters, yeah, I remember hearing, like, Violent Femmes' first record, second record with Blister in the Sun on it, and, like... Frank Zappa's Valley Girl and Beastie Boys Licensed Ill. Like, so some of that music was like catching my attention at a very young age that my, you know, my sisters were playing. Um, so I was around that, but my own personal discovery, you know, I, I, I think music really clicked for me and really started to happen around the time of like, you know, seventh grade with like when 10, I think 10 was a big influence. I don't even, I don't think I've ever vocalized that to myself, but I think Pearl Jam's 10 <laughs> was like a really huge influence because it sort of hit me like emotionally and it was like powerful and like, you know, smells like teen spirit had sort of come out and that was a big thing. And that's sort of, you know, being in seventh grade and having that music, you know, watching 120 minutes and Nirvana on TV and like, so just, you know, and then it was all of that. It was like, that whole period of like Beck and Mellow Gold and, you know, all of that, the grunge stuff that was happening on television, Woodstock, the, you know, 95 and stuff at 15. And then, so all of that stuff. And then, you know, and then hearing like the pop punk and then ska and then all of this and that and this, and then it all sort of led up until, you know, um, I think like, uh, you know, high school when it kind of got into like, listening to Radiohead was a like when the Benz came out I think that was like the probably the the that's when it started to be like I want to do this like this music is like my I'd fallen in love for the first time I actually had my heart broken the first time like listening to the Benz on a flight to LA like with a heart broken you know and uh and just feeling it you know in my feelings like so hard and you know making mixtapes for you know that same girl with like Tori Amos and The Cure and like, you know, like Mazzy Star, like all this kind of music that you would like sit in bed in the dark and sort of contemplate um, everything. Um, mm -hmm. So I was really attracted to a lot of that music, you know, um, and Brit pop having access to like much music, which was like a Canadian television, music television show. So I used to always love watching much music and finding artists that no one else in America kind of knew about. And so it was always like a thing that became this thing of like discovery or even early. I remember finding this artist Hayden who I was absolutely in love with, who was kind of like a post Beck kind of Canadian really. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but I remember, I remember. Mm -hmm. yeah, I remember like in 10th grade, I was from long Island sneaking into Mercury, like coming to the city and sneaking into Mercury lounge and just thinking it was like I died and gone to heaven, like knowing every word. And there was like 40 people in the audience. And here Hayden was like this star to me and my friends. And I remember going up to asking him after the show if like he listened to Radiohead. And I was always dying to know if he, what he thought of Radiohead and stuff. And <laughs> But it was weird coming back to Mercury Lounge years later and 
but yeah, I mean, I think music in high school for me was just, it became an obsession. And then, and then at the end, you know, more and more started listening to things from the past, but yeah, I'd say, I'd say Radiohead was the biggest influence uh, from the bends to OK Computer and then Kide were just kind of me and my friends were just obsessed with that and, you know, pavement and talking heads and yeah, all of that. I remember going to see the uh, Tibetan Freedom concert and it was, that was just kind of the height of, of all the, all of that stuff, you know, it was like uh, P- pavement, Bjork, uh, the Beastie Boys. Um, yeah, it was like, that was, that was the height of all of that stuff for me. And radio had actually played too, like as a duo, but yeah. Yeah. We've talked about Tibetan freedom concert oh, yeah. a couple times on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a, like a kind of a, a mark for all of yeah, If you got to go. Yeah. Were you like more of a maker of mixtapes or did you receive mixtapes a lot? Uh, I think both, but yeah, I, Definitely with my first high school love, we had like we we communicated our feelings through mixtapes. I actually stumbled on a few a few of them, like going through storage in Richmond during, you know, COVID. And uh, it's just crazy. Like you remember, you remember like the the segues you remember. I didn't listen to them because I'm I I even had trouble like listening to the stuff that we're going to talk about. I just for me, like listening to music from the past, it's like, it's kind of like looking at old pictures, which I'm not really good at doing either. And it, it's like listening to old songs is, it's even more vivid than the pictures are. Cause it's like the feelings, the smells and everything sort of come rushing back. But yeah. yeah, if I put on some of those tapes now, I would probably remember the next song that was coming next. And, um, you know, some weird like, Allison Chain's ballad from Jar of Flies into like, <laughs> you know, like that acoustic song on Led Zeppelin where it's like Brawny Year into like, you know, Winter by Tori Amos. And, you know, it's like all of these kind of really heavy kind of things, you know, pictures of you into like Nine Inch Nails, like um, something I can never have, you know, like, so those were like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the kind of area of music that, that we were kind of, playing those are where our songs if you will shout out Kristen if you somehow are listening to this. <laughs> if you somehow stumble on this yeah. yeah yeah you saw my instagram story you clicked it there you are <laughs> exactly no but yeah so that was like and you know i mean all the music i think from like 15 to 23 like that's the stuff i can't you know and I, there's like studies that have proven that but it's like that's where all of the you know tattoos on my soul from all those tapes and (laughs) cds and stuff you know remain to this day yeah it sticks with you i know you were talking about radiohead and i think it might be a nice way to segue into the first album that we're going to be covering for repeat skip because this band actually opened for radiohead back in the aughts I think on a couple tours, actually. It's Clinic and their debut album, Internal Wrangler, from uh, 2000. I love this album so much. I was so happy that you picked it. And yeah, my first introduction to Clinic, I remember reading, I don't even know where it was, but it was right around the time when Kid A came out. And there was an article that was like, 
If you're disappointed that Radiohead went in this direction, you should listen to these bands. And it listed Clinic. Uh, it listed uh, Cigarose. I don't remember what else was on there. Maybe Doves or something. And I was like, Clinic? What is this band about? And then I Googled them. And I was like, this whole their look was just like i'm into it already and then i was listening and i was like okay now i need to pick up the cd and i was immediately hooked uh with internal wrangler just because it for me it was like something about it was so random and experimental but something about it was very poppy in a sense and kind of crazy and frenetic and i don't know i just i i really enjoyed this record and i have a lot more to say but i want to hear what you thought of this record uh billy yeah, I mean, I remember a lot of the, sort of those same feelings. Um, I, you know, I think that the record kind of came out, I think, overseas in 2000 and then really didn't come out in the U.S. In, a year later. So I, I remember there was like, you know, there was a lot of buzz. And, I, you know, I, I was reading, you know, Pitchfork since like 1998 and I had like a T1 connection at college and I sort of stumbled on it. And when it was probably just Ryan in his apartment, you know, posting every now and then. So I was kind of obsessed with that. You know, I think it was called pitchfork.com at the time, but, and then you went to it and there was like a pitchfork and redirected to pitchfork. I remember the actual pitchfork. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I, I would always like, and I would be like, you know, snobby about the reviews or like have my opinion and be like, you know, and it was like, so it was like what they were reviewing. And I just remember, I think clinics, I think it came out and it was just like hyped from the gate. And I was like, uh. but like I heard it and Radiohead had like co-signed on it. And I think same with you. Like I was, I was really in that sort of Sigaros Radiohead kind of clinic thing. Yeah. I just remember, I think it was even the strokes had sort of started to happen in America. Cause they had done that tour in this fall maybe, or it was around the same time. So it kind of had that same sort of, garage rock cool raspy kind of poppy but still a little bit loose um kind of element but with some of that esoteric british kind of conceptual side the more art rock kind of wire and can thing that i was like super interested too so it sort of spoke to me a bit more than than the stroke stuff but i was yeah and it was just it was beautiful it was simple and you know, it kind of had, it sort of touched on a lot of familiar things. You could hear like Iggy Pops in there, Iggy Pop, Pop, Pops, Pops, you know, Iggy Pops in there. He's uh, Pops now, he's 70 yeah, or so. Yeah, yeah he's definitely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and just like, you know, there was just, and it was funny and the artwork was like so interesting because it was like a complete ripoff of this jazz record um, which i also thought was interesting too because the strokes record and i don't think people talk about it too much but the second cover of that strokes record is actually a complete ripoff of someone else's record too i think a lesser known like rock band from the 80s or 90s or something but so it's mm-hmm. it sort of that's a side note but i yeah it it was um the ornette coleman record and so i just thought it was um yeah i just thought they were so cool like i just and like the pace and the, the the diversity and the range of tracks from like Distortions, which is still probably one of the most heartbreaking songs and most beautiful songs I've ever heard in my life to, you know, like a return of Evil Bill or, or you know, all, just I think every song on that record is perfect and they're all 
kind of short, but they're all complete thoughts. And by the time it ends, you're just like, <gasps> and then you kind of like, you could just start it over again. Um, and that's mm -hmm. always a, a, a good sign of a record where it almost feels like a mixtape, if you will. You know, it's like, it's yeah. like a record collector's mixtape or something or, you know, but yeah, just, I really loved it. And, and for me, I had a, I remember I really fell into that love with that record around 9-11 and I remember walking around, I was in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia. I remember just kind of walking around the streets of Richmond downtown with that on headphones and just kind of like a ghost and like walking into a church and sitting down and just like staring blankly, listening to Clint. Like I can still see that moment now and that, and you know, that was another band that was kind of like, yeah, I want, this is what I want to do. I want to make music with my friends and, and, you know, get close to this, to this feeling as possible. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, for sure. Kind of vibing with the other passengers stuff. Definitely. And like, I also felt like that album was like a, a complete journey and like pretty perfect. I felt like, cause there's just all sorts of sounds going on, but they all really work together, even though it can change from song to song and you know, the energy, like the really like unique vocals in it. Yeah. Just... I, I really appreciated, I actually listened to it again today um prior to this and i you know a lot of people can hear a song and remember the lyrics right away or or all they hear is the lyrics and for some reason i've just i could hear a song a thousand times and be like in a car and like like fake like blah like like not knowing like knowing the song by heart but just not knowing what the lyrics are it's just i don't know if it's you know i'm left-handed or, or i'm just something's wrong with me but i so like music that has, you know, no actual lyrical, con like there's no, there's only a few songs on that record that have distinguishable words or lyrics and mm -hmm. much like Sigaros and Hope Landic, um, you know, I really, and like Can is another good example where it's like, I don't understand it, but it's beautiful and I can feel it. And it sort of allows me to just sort of focus on the music better or just feel the music as a whole better, which is kind of like jazz too, because there's no lyrics so i think that once the lyrics come into play it 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 adds such a a, a different element to which is not bad because i love songs and i love great lyrics and there's a beauty to it but there's a different sort of uh, approach to listening to music that doesn't have that element and it's kind of liberating in a, in a way yeah and i think there's such an incredible live act with all the random vintage instruments and and whatnot and obviously they're all dressed alike i think They've always been fascinating. First time yeah. I saw them was with Radio 4. <laughs> remember them? Uh, at Pier 54 uh, in the early aughts. And I remember just like freaking out that I finally got to see them because at that point I'd been a fan for maybe two, three years. And yeah. then um, I've seen them, I would say, almost every single tour, like U.S. tour yeah. when they come to New York. And when they came to Bell House, maybe in like 2010, I think they were touring the Bubblegum album. And... At that point, I had written about the band X amount of times, and we would I would DM with uh, Abe, I think is the singer's name. And I remember he invited me backstage to Bell House to like say hi to them, and they didn't have the masks on. And I was, I, my jaw was on the ground because I wasn't ready for that. Because like, you know, you just, when you think of clinic, you think of the masks and, you, and how timely it is right now. But like, yeah. um, I don't know, it, it was like a trip for me. 
it's like running into Daft Punk at like uh, Whole Foods and on Sunset. But, you know, it's like <laughs> uh, it's like wow, what no? Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was the reason I part in part picked Clinic too, aside from the record, is it was the first show I saw in New York when I got here, and I, it was October eighteenth, two thousand and two. It was at Warsaw with Animal Collective. I liked Animal Collective's record Here Come the Indians, but I was really there to see Clinic. And I remember I got kicked out. I got thrown out. Uh, it was almost like that oh, scene no. in like Fresh Fresh Prince of Bel Air where like Jazzy <laughs> Jeff gets like kicked out or whatever. It's like yeah. I got kicked out the side door for moshing because I was like I you know, probably had a few drinks, probably a few, and I was I was so excited and it was like this was such a huge moment for me and I couldn't, mm-hmm. the mu- I just couldn't contain myself because that music does have like a charging, yeah. like, yeah, like you just want to. It like, almost makes you nervous in a sense. Oh yeah. yeah I love I, it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I ended up just not getting to see the rest of the show, but yeah, that was my first concert in New York. Yeah. And oh, wow. what a good one in retrospect, you know, Animal Collective going on to become the thing that, you know, they kind of were to New York mm-hmm. and the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you say is like your favorite track from that album? Uh, just, just distortions. Yeah. 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 yeah there's I, something I, so beautiful about that track. And like you said, yeah. something so pure that. It, it, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, obviously it stands out on the record as maybe the anomaly, but it's just such a classic, like golden track, I think. Yeah. It's, um, it's apparently it's actually about, it was originally called abortions. And the label, the label thought that was a little too heavy handed. So they changed the chorus to distortions because I think uh, it comes about, there's actually a demo on YouTube for the abortions version you can listen to, Mm. which I I kind of learned this recently, like, you know, last year or two years ago or something, but it kind of makes sense if, because it's a very personal, you just kind of feel that, that you're just like out there with his feelings and, and at the end, and it kind of, you know, yeah, it has like a, kind of has like a, um, oh, sweet nothing, or um, uh, what's, there's another Velvet Underground ending song, or, you know, Dry the Rain or so, or it just has this like coda that you just kind of feel on um, this release at the end of it. But yeah, that's definitely, that's the one I show people. I'm like, oh, you've never heard them? You have to hear this song. Like that, that'll be the one I play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I think all three of us really love this release, so it's kind of tough. I mean, I probably would pick uh, Evil Bill, Distortions, Second Foot Stomp. I mean, I even love The Closer, Good Night Georgie. George. I love Good this whole George, record. Yeah. yeah, there's just like, you know, I I was kind of jotting down notes re-listening to this record, and probably the only thing I would skip is like one of the short interludes, uh, DJ Shangri-La, yeah. which was, I mean, unnecessary, but... But yeah, I didn't hate it. Yeah, and even the first, the opening is just so weird. It's like what's well, like fifty seconds, and it has this like these waves crash, but it like sets up the next song so perfectly that it's like, yeah, it's it's really I was smart. Reading that the singer, but the but the band as a whole were kind of like superstitious, and when it originally came out, they didn't want to have like a thirteenth track. It was just like four seconds of silence. <laughs> and I, was, I just thought that was like really interesting. Cause like, That's really me. I never knew that. that. Yeah. No. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, I found it hard to actually pick like a, a track that I would skip just because I felt like the album was just so good. And I just, but I don't know. I think I just like ended up like if I had to choose one, Good Night Georgie, but I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't skip it though in actual life. Yeah, it's pretty perfect <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in actual life. But I yeah, feel like I, they got yeah. so much more attention with uh, with the following release, with Walking With Thee, when they actually had like an MTV single and they got to play, I think they played Letterman or one of the late night shows. So they had, I think that was kind of their peak fame, maybe. They were nominated for a Grammy for that record, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. so weird yeah. in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, for the best alternative yeah. album. But yeah, I, yeah I, I, it's weird that they sort of came out with yeah that was the that that kind of felt like a kind of like you know continuation of kind of like the what was it what was the second strokes record was it a rooms on fire room on fire room on fire where it was like kind of like not as good or not as but like a continuation of some of those thoughts and then i i feel like clinic kind of just unfortunately never really made something you know they just they made their music and they just kind of kept making it for for better or for worse um but it was like you know hearing that first record and having not heard them before had such an impact but you know i i kind of wish they had made i guess i guess my skip here would be all the records after it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, I, do, I do feel like the, the nothing was really as exciting as Internal Wrangler for me, but I, st- I still love them. But that was definitely my favorite. Yeah, yeah. It, it it was a moment in time and it was like, you know, the masks made a lot of sense and then kind of got not old, but, you know, maybe they're old now because, you know, we're all wearing them. But yeah, but yeah, so that would be what I, I would skip. I mean, I just love anything that sounds like very 60s, garagey, psychedelic, so... I don't know. For me, like the top, like the the song that really like makes me mo- get up and move is like the title track. So mm-hmm. that was just me, though. I just felt no, I like love that. his vocals are just so playful and like it's just so fun and the energy it just like gets me going. Shall we hop into the second album? I think so. It is from the same year. Uh, Modest Mouse is the Moon in Antarctica. Billy, you want to hop in and? Tell us some of your memories of this one. I found it a little hard to go back to this one because... Yeah, same. Same. For me, it was... I was really emotionally attached to this record. I I was kind of a huge fan of Modest Mouse. Lonesome Crowded West was like a really important record to me. And I remember when they signed to a major label, it was kind of like, you know, Modest Mouse is selling out. And uh, it's kind of like heartbroken but you know they made the record and i remember the record kind of coming out around uh i feel like around the time again like kid a and i'm not exactly sure but it felt like around that time and it was it was definitely around the time when it was like the the bush re-election zone and i was like a, a senior in college and i i remember there was a there was i'd done ecstasy for the first time with a friend in college and we sat and listened to Kid A and Moon in Antarctica back to back, like all the way through. And I, <laughs> and I remember he filmed it and I never want to see that. I never want to see what, <laughs> what I was, what I was saying, but it, cause like it's cringe to the, 
but yeah, but I did, I do remember all the feelings I had and, and, and the, 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 the record is just like, it's really crazy because it, it had, it kind of, for me, it was, it sort of tied together those two things that I loved, which was like American indie of like, sort of like pavement and, and then the, sort of like the space and sort of experimentation of Radiohead. And it was kind of like, you know, it was like, it ground, it's like met in the middle of those two of pavement is the ground and Radiohead was space, like Modest Mouse kind of bridged that gap and still had some of the elements of like talking heads that I was really obsessed with. Um, and a little bit more rhythmic, dancey, kind of like, kind of like Clinic in a sense, where some of it was like groovy um, compared to a lot of the other sort of like brooding indie rock that was sort of coming out. Right. And I just remember being so inspired by the record and and going to see a few of the shows and you know never knowing if isaac brock was going to be like you know blacked out or if he was going to play a good show or there was just something kind of like punk and exciting about them at the time and and i feel like they were uncomfortable with like a major label but just kind of easing into that stuff which you know later really worked out for them globally um with their next record but yeah for me that was just that was a, a big record at that age. I was 20 or 21 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I had a moment in college where I really was listening to a lot of emo and screamo stuff and not that I would necessarily put modest mouse in this category, but I feel like some of these songs were maybe adjacent to that whole thing. So I was going to see saves the day and taking back Sunday and whoever else uh, brand new who Modest Mouse toured with at one point fairly recently. But for some reason, this album wasn't as much on my radar as maybe it should have been. And embarrassingly, I didn't really kind of have a moment with them until they had those big radio blog hits, you know. So I kind of went backwards a little bit. So I don't have as much of a personal relationship with this release. That's my two cents on that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of people did that. Actually, a person who lives in my building I was talking about the record with today he said the same thing he had heard float on and kind of worked his way backwards and kind of fell in the love, fell in love with the record after. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have gotten turned on to them earlier. And it was like, you know, like with my learner's permit, listening to like lonesome crowded West and like having that freedom and like the, like the, the angst of Isaac Brock and, you know, the, the screaming and then the soft singing and then the quiet loud pixies thing was just, it just really spoke to angsty, emotional, young Billy Jones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am a typical late bloomer. That's like my whole life. I'm a late bloomer. But like, uh, yeah, I didn't actually get into Modest Mouse till later. I just remember I, being at a concert. And actually, I think like I was uh, at like uh, I was friends with uh, their agent and um I met another friend who's like a close friend now at um, a show. I think we were like at Terminal 5 or something. I forget who we were watching. And they were like, did I meet you at a Modest Mouse show like in the 90s? And I was like, I wish. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, I wish I was that cool. I love that you think that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually like, it was definitely this like snobby, like, oh, you either like, liked modest mouse or you didn't you know that was like my kind of my like the era which is so silly but at the time but it was kind of like a thing and like i remember going to see them and the shins opened up for them and i and i guess isaac had kind of discovered them as 
he like kind of got a weird little gig doing a and r for sub pop and that was like the introduction of the shins to me is like seeing them open for modest mouse at black cat in washington dc which is really wild and you know after what they did kind of after that yeah i don't know like yeah i i have like memories of really going to see them when the float on kind of wave came on just like live and being like at webster hall and just being surrounded by like frat dudes <laughs> and i actually yeah, the fan base changed i'm sure the fan base changed and i didn't like it and i uh, mean the, I... even the indie even when they were in more indie it was just indie frat bros <laughs> it was just the same kind of <laughs> just the worst they're worse than actual frat guys no um but yeah no i i know i remember going to see them it was actually one of those cool kind of summer tours but it was for me it was like the last straw seeing them but it was like I think it was, and we can Google this together, but it was like Cake, Modest Mouse, and then I want to say Flaming Lips, but I know that's not true. There was like another band, but it was like, yeah, it was like this kind of interesting outdoor summer t traveling tour. Um, and that yeah. the crowd that the crowd that you mentioned was quite quite similar. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, but the, but you know, then I have like a memory of seeing them like at United Palace and. That was like when Johnny Marr was playing with them and um, I was like backstage and I just remember like thinking like Isaac Brock and Johnny Marr are both short guys. And you wrote about it. I right? did. I did write about it. <laughs> you know, you know but... that's so strange. It's like I totally forgot that Johnny Marr was in Modest Mouse and I like this is like so you know i for some reason i wrote off the smiths for my entire life and i just i would hear them but i never really heard them and then i remember embarrassingly enough last year or like two years ago because this year doesn't count or one year i don't even know but maybe two years does this year count i don't know but i <laughs> something happened where the smiths clicked for me like at age 40 or 39 or whatever i am then and i spent the entire summer like a 15 year old listening to the smiths like i couldn't hear anything else like nothing else was as good as the smiths so now it's kind of like mm -hmm. i wish i had gotten a chance to see johnny marr because his guitar is incredible and the smiths like play oh. with with modest mouse like i have no yeah. i don't even know what it would sound like to hear him play on some of those earlier songs that i that i know and love johnny marr is definitely like a, a transcendent experience even when um he was doing like the, the the stuff with like the healers and stuff like i remember just going to see him and just being like this guy can literally chew bubble gum and play guitar exactly. at the same oh. time <laughs> yeah i saw johnny Marr. we've talked about it on the podcast so i won't revisit it for too long but with the cribs when he was doing that that snit with them and that was the night i met him and kind of freaked out uh, and then he did a book. He released a book a couple years ago, and he had an event at Gramercy Theater, which is that venue, whatever. Uh, but yeah. anyway, um, and I got to meet him again. And that time, I didn't fall down and start crying, so that was good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm ready um, to fall down, fall down crying. Johnny, 
I'm prepared. But yeah, going back to this Modest Mouse release, I think probably my favorite would be Third Planet, and my skip would be, well, I picked two, actually. One was uh, Tiny Cities Made of Ashes. I just kind of felt like a Talking Heads vibe that I actually was not into. And also, The Stars Are Projectors, just because that song is like nine minutes long, and I... After about four or five minutes, I was kind of over it, to be honest. But one more thing I wanted to mention about Modest Mouse from from this era is that they played Siren Festival in 2002. And I wish I paid more attention because I was my mind was solely focused on Slater Kinney, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, The Donnas, Pretty Girls Make Graves, like all my all my girl bands. And like when Modest Mouse came on, I was probably like having a beer and paying zero attention, (laughs) honestly. And I'm a little embarrassed, but yeah. Dude, I, like, didn't realize they were on that bill. Like, I I saw that in your notes, and I was like, wait, what? They were? I mean, I think that was the same year. Was that the same year La Savi Fav also played? Yes. I feel like I was very focused on, like, watching them and just the, you know, the wild thing that is Tim Harrington to watch live. But, you know, and and then also, like, I think that was the first time I had uh, seen the shins as well. So, I mean, that was kind of like a crazy year for Siren Festival. But, yeah. You know, it's funny that you say Tiny Cities Made of Ashes. It's like, I, I feel like that was like my favorite track from this. Although, like, it was a really hard album to get through just because one, it's like an hour long and there's like a billion songs on it. But like that one I thought was pretty cool because like, it, you know. There's just like a really cool bass line, I thought. And, you know, I like even when he gets like kind of screamy, it's like still melodic and stuff. And there's nice energy to it. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like that that was a song that I guess had the most sort of like radio play if there was one. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely sticks out more so than others and has kind of like, you know, that was not that they had anything to do with it, but that was like there was some sort of in the ether of the subconscious, the cultural subconscious, if you will, that that dance punk kind of post-punk dance thing was like beginning to happen with like the rapture and and, and stuff like that. And that song could have fallen on like a mixtape of of those things. But, you know, I I was kind of like more like, uh, as far as like skipping a track, trying to decide between like wild packs of family dogs and i came as a rat i don't know just something about them just didn't resonate with me yeah i feel i would i would skip wild pack of family dogs too yeah yeah did you have like a favorite from the album or yeah i i think um third planet is just because it it opens up and it's just it's really pretty and so iconic and it just for someone who knows and loves the record um it's almost it's like you're taking off or going into it and so that would be my favorite track on the record tiny cities made of ashes is also and stars are projectors but there's actually a song and i think it's basically on the spotify now but they it came out on the japanese release of the import remember imports were so cool they have like a song that no but yeah but yeah the import had uh, the song called Night on the Sun. And it's, I think it just wouldn't fit on a CD. Like you said, it was so long and it's, it's a, uh, it's like a 10 or 11 minute song. And so I think they did like a 12 inch or I don't even know if they were producing 12 inches or just like a, an EP or a single um, for just that. Um, but it's basically a part of the record and it feels like the record and it's on the record. And I was really into like 
long jams and space. And so I feel like that song um, was, I thought, the closest sort of bridge between the Lonesome Crowded West and uh, that record. So although it's not on the record, it, it is my one of my favorite songs on the record. Uh-huh. Got it. Adjacent. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, like, you know, I read that um, Isaac Brock wasn't, like, happy with this album, like, the mix of it or, like, the order of tracks and, like, he really wanted to, like, reissue it and, like, redo <laughs> some of the mixes. Oh, that's right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Did he ever so, do that? Was there ever, like, a, a like a, a reissue There was, like, a couple. Isaac's it was, mix? Like, 2004, I think there was, like, a reissue and then, like, I think like in 2010 for like the the 10 year anniversary they did another reissue but then they they I think they it ended up like um going back to like the original <laughs> like like tracks. <laughs> so it was like a very back and forth with that stuff. <laughs> yeah, apparently he was in a dark place during the recording of that. I just, you know, stumbled up like he broke his jaw in a bar fight. Ooh during that recording because they were doing it in Chicago with this guy Brian Dick and so I guess he was going out at night and stuff and I, he I he ruffled people's feathers I remember hearing a lot about that even like in the local scene and stuff he could you know he's kind of a dick but I don't think his heart was in the right place but I think he just kind of lost control sometimes but yeah I think he yeah I think that was a maybe you know but to me the record yeah, I think the record's perfect so that's yeah, I probably should have picked something where I, I really wouldn't skip any track on this record either. <laughs> but I'd skip all the records that came after. Um, but yeah, right. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, yes! What a pleasure yeah. and an honor to see you uh, <laughs> see you both again. Stars, stars from my past. Yes, you guys have very. Thank you for all of your support through the years and and what you guys do. Yeah, Thank and, you, you know, course. also, like, just congratulations on everything you've achieved throughout the years. I think it's, like, so admirable and, like, and and then to achieve that but still be, like, cool, like, cool, <laughs> awesome, like, you know, uh, friendly yeah. guy. Like, I think that's, like, yeah. you know, a rare gem there, you know? Yes, well, my mother raised me well. Mom, if you're listening, <laughs> thanks for clicking on the Instagram story link. <laughs> Even though, even though I had to show you how. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, keep yeah. us updated on when the shop opens. Yeah, well, I'll, come, I'll come back and I'll plug that, and I'll we'll do some more records that uh that I, that I don't skip any songs. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Uh, thanks so much, Billy, for joining us on another episode of Mixtape Memories, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.